you have all these people who are losing nature, losing everything that they had in nature. They had their plot of land. They had a bit of organic by default food. They had, a, you know, the medicinal things. They had access to the commons, the local forest where they could gather mushrooms and, um, and herbs and things like that. What they lost was also the knowledge which came along with all of that. If you start looking at everything that was lost by divorcing us from nature, it's absolutely phenomenal. It's health, body, sense of your bodily integrity and your owning your own body, your um, rootedness in culture, a, a culture that is attuned to your natural environment. It's loss of soul. It's loss of, loss of so many things. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Jack. Today, Paul welcomes back Enno Reitor, author of Kreefda, God Tricks Against the Matrix. Paul continues his deep dialogue with Enna, a translator, anthropologist, practitioner of grassroots spirituality and past life regression therapist. Enna, from her extensive experience living with people at subsistence level, gives us a potent lesson on poverty. Paul shares how deeply moved and emotional he got while reading the sections of poverty in Enna's book, how deeply saddened he was as he revisited the actual facts of how the super-rich and religious elite strategically create poverty and destitution as a means of controlling people. Enna explains how what is typically perceived, especially by first world people, as poverty among native peoples is not poverty at all, but a form of true abundance and wisdom. They need little time each day to meet their needs. They have time to be with and raise their children. They have time to make beautiful exotic arts and crafts from their own environment with minimal technology and largely make the tools they use. They have a natural wisdom that comes from using their hands, being at one with the land and beings of nature. They have time to rest, dance, sing, and celebrate life. They have a love of nature and a wealth of knowledge that results from being connected to nature. But what keeps happening to them and their natural wisdom? Enna describes how access to TV and predatory marketing is often the beginning of the end for native cultures living in harmony with nature. When the youth see all the fancy toys, gadgets, cars, and lures of big success, they lose interest in the natural, simple, mundane life that stabilizes and harmonizes them and leave the villages seeking money and prestige. Soon, villagers are engrossed in TV, eating junk food, using drugs, and find themselves not in the poverty of abundance, but in the exact kind of poverty the money gods have been devising for several thousand years as a means of taking their natural resources, putting them to work for slave labor wages, and keeping them subservient to the system. Though what Enna shares from her personal experience of living with peasants for about 30 years in India and Thailand and her extensive research is easy to see when we start paying attention. These truths are so painful to us that we often bury the pain of them in our own unconscious, ignore the poverty, or accept the Western idea that poverty is the product of people's own laziness without realizing how deeply wounded poverty-stricken people are when extracted from their natural ways of life. If you take the native out of the forest, you also take the forest out of the native. And that is a very painful form of soul loss, a sacrifice of human beings the money gods, often referred to as developers, make without a flinch. 
Though Paul and even you may have differing opinions than Anna's, she is very authentic, well experienced in a life of poverty, and highly educated in the areas she speaks about. Because diversity of opinion is essential to expanding our awareness and viewpoints, it is important to be present and listen fully without shutting down or shutting out the opinions of others, particularly wise elders like Enna. So Paul encourages all of you to listen with an open heart, curiosity of mind, and in the spirit of education. There has never been a more important time in the life of humanity than now to take an honest look at what has been done to us, is being done to us, and coming to the realization that being passive or waiting for someone else to fix the issues of the world is naive. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, we are with Anna Retort, author of Krivda, The God Tricks Against the Matrix. I hope you've enjoyed part one and part two of this series. Today, our title is The Sacrifice of Earth and Humanity. And let me tell you, I think you guys know I've studied a lot, and Anna has given me uh, study assignments so that I'm up with the key sections of the podcast, because right now, as most of you know, I'm writing a book, so I have very little time to read anything not specific to my project. So to help me out, she gave me specific reading assignments. And as I read the reading assignments she gave me today, I there was times where I was literally having tears come to my eyes. And there was times I was going, holy shit, they're using exactly the same formulas they've been using for thousands of years on us right now. So I'm excited about today. The first podcast with Anna, we got into her history and what makes her credible and a lot about the etymology of words. The second podcast that we did was uh, about Jesus, the perpetual betrayal of humanity, where I celebrated with Anna that the story of Jesus that she shares by a man named Esposito was probably the most realistic story of Jesus I've ever read, and the only story of Jesus that I could actually possibly believe. Um, so that was quite a shock for me. I, I developed a new relationship with Jesus, which for a lot of you, you know, that that means something. And I'll just preface today by saying Enna's book is extremely well-written, very scholarly. There's loads and loads of great references. And the thing about reading Enna's book that has really struck me, it's not like reading a book where you have to figure out, well, where do I see this in the world? Like if you're watching a sci-fi movie with stuff that never happens in the real world, or you haven't seen an alien before, it just becomes kind of fantasy land. But reading Enna's book is just like, it's so freaking obvious what's going on. But when she puts the pieces together and builds it up from the ground elements, like a foundation of a house, and then she puts the walls on, and then she's, you know, now we're, we've got some walls up. Today we're going to go for the the roof and get some of the main pieces, but then we'll finish up with the fourth part will be really what are things that we can do. The fourth session is titled Back to the Future of Humanity. So that's my preface. Today, Enna's going to begin by recapping the elements of religion and anything else she wants to share, and then we're going to run from there. But I'm going to just tell you today, 
have your seatbelt on. What we're talking about today with Anna, I read these sections of the book, and this might be hard for some of you to digest. It might trigger your programming, but my encouragement for you is to remember, if you listen from your heart, you'll know when you're hearing the truth. And if we run from the truth, then we'll never know the truth. And everything Enna says is not only backed by credible references. My question for you is, are you willing to look around you and look at your own life right now and say, is what Enna's talking about happening right in front of my nose? If you look around you and you see that, then you know you're hearing the truth, and that should inspire you to be motivated and inspired to be the change and do everything we can do together as a humanity to come back to our power and come back to our responsibility to each other and the planet. So sorry for the long intro, Anna, but uh, welcome back. And I'm just so excited to be with you again. I know you've got a lot to share with us today, so let it, let it rip. Hi, Paul, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm really, I'm really moved. You know, it's wonderful for an author who has just come out of the woodwork to know that, that they're understood, you know, and that the message is, is landing. And, I mean, you know, you are... You are, how should I say it? I mean, for the message to have landed with you means a lot to me. So thank you. So, you know, the, the, there's, lo there's, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff in the book. You know, we obviously can't cover everything, but I hope from the two previous parts, the audience will have understood that there is a kind of, there's a structure at play in what we call religion. And I'm not talking about religion in terms of one's personal um, mature faith in something out there that pervades the down here, okay? Whatever people want to call it, source or whatever. And, you know, we, I, I have questioned the, the word God because it is used for so many different things and entities that I think it's a dangerous word to use now in terms of all the confusion. But basically, there is what was developed by the religions of old, of antiquity, and then perfected over the centuries of the Christian religion is a system that has a structure, institutions, methods, specific skills, a, a ruling class, the priesthood, with its high priests who are high initiates in things uh, very esoteric, very occult. It has an overall goal, not of uplifting, but of controlling the populations. The population, the human population, together with nature, but mainly the human populations, are the resource for the gods of these religions and for their priesthoods. And you may recall that the uh, ambition of the Christian church was to become planetary, to cover the whole planet. And they have succeeded. 
once they had converted all of the West to, uh, to that religion, the same was exported through colonialism and missionaries and, and just the thought processes that animate the, the economic model and models that have been um, exported around the world, the scientific model of thinking, all of that is predicated in the in the new scientific form, not the not the pure science form, not the open science form. It's all predicated on the same model. Now, the religion, the system, has a huge talent to extract, to extract energy, food, what have you, from its resource, the human population and nature. How does it operate? The main modality is deceit, what I have called krivda, with that Russian word, which to me carries much, much more weight than just deceit. Deceit is kind of, well, it's an abstract word, but krivda, I mean, you know, to me it tells me that they've made the, the truth really, the reality of things really crooked. And what does deceit mean? It means lying, simulating, manipulating reality, confusing people, pretending, false promises, secrecy, hiding in plain sight, all these things that we're seeing today. The crookedness involves creating false dualities. This is something that is very esoteric but needs to be understood. We are afraid of the real sun. We have been indoctrinated into false gods. Be they Ra or Zeus, they were not the real sun. The real sun has never demanded worship, but Ga, Ra and Zeus, and and then you know the the Jesus of the Bible, who is a reconstructed esoteric solar symbol. All these demand worship and sacrifice and donations and this, that, and the other. So we need to understand that the system operates by falsifying the fundamentals. There is also the false dark. What is the natural dark? It's night, which is the most precious times for bodies to repair. We've become afraid of the dark. Isn't that strange? And, you know, in all the spiritual circles, we say going to the light and climbing out of the dark, and those are the dark forces. So we're using these words in a way that is detrimental to our own relation to the natural light and the natural dark in which we are completely, actually, naturally, and spiritually embedded. So when one is attuned to that, one can start feeling, is that a naturally dark or a naturally light thing or process or whatever? You can start feeling into it and you decipher everything very quickly. So... I've, having mentioned the false light, false dark aspect, there's, you know, false masculinity, false femininity, false masculine, false feminine. It's all over the place. This involves an esoteric manipulation of reality through words, through the manipulation of language. And the, that's only one aspect of the occult esoteric games. I have a question, Emma. Yeah. There's also a tremendous manipulation by the use of imagery. Absolutely. 
and and so you know with all the media streaming and stuff going on and also when you study christianity you you look at the art it's clear to me as an art therapist who knows how to read art that they were actually brainwashing people through the art so i just wanted to say because you didn't mention the art and the image aspect i think that that with so much people you know the average person is on watching television almost five hours a day and kids are often up to eight hours a day college students sometimes eight hours a day between uh phones and computers and tvs so when you when you look at the fact that current science and i've researched this shows that photons have an almost infinite capacity to carry information you can pack way more information into the light that's hitting a people a person's eyes than they can even come close to realizing is acting on their unconscious and uh, so i think that everybody needs to be aware that when Anna's talking about the programming powers of religion and big science they're using imagery and light in very, very dangerous ways that should be downright illegal. The same applies to all the senses, actually. You know, we might be able to talk about the senses, but there is a saturation of the senses with an overemphasis on the visual. You know, everybody is totally drowned in imagery. I mean, there's the violence of the content. There's the violence of the colors. Um... I'm very sensitive to colors because I've worked a lot with natural dyes and it is absolutely shocking. Um, and it's constant. So, I mean, it's both the form and the substance and the, and the, and the, you know, around the clock, which is like people are in their own homes, but they are in fact, as if they were in isolation in prison being subjected to 24 seven, um, you know, whatever, the, the not being able to sleep, not being able to, it's being done in a more uh, surreptitious way than it's done overtly in prison, but it's the same principle. It's, it's, it's terribly, you know, what has, has come back to my mind over and over again is the allegory of Plato's cave where people are watching the shadows on the wall and they get so entrained in it, they don't realize that's not reality. They're actually seeing shadows. They're not really seeing life. And and I think that's really dangerous. And and before you go on, I, I wrote a question down that I want to ask you because it's bothering me. You know, I'm curious to, to preface my question. When do you feel this? priest culture and brainwashing and mind control began with with regard to history it certainly was before the time of jesus because they were already very good at it by then so when did when do you recognize from your research that there's evidence of an organized capture of the human mind through these techniques it for sure with the um, mesopotamian civilizations you can't have a civilization. Civilization means civis, city. You can't have a really civilized civilization without um, power structures which are organized around a palace and or a temple. And, you know, in those 
ancient times, the distinction between palace and temple basically could be very blurred. You know, the, you could have kings who were the high priest. Um, so historically, or nearly, yeah, it is. His, historically, it would go back to those times where you have... And that's, what, 10, 12,000 years ago? No, that would be... We don't really know when it started, but say minus 4,000 BC, BCE. So that's 6,000. Six, that's why I, I, I mentioned 6,000, because that's it, it would have started earlier with perhaps, you know, not so clear. But we have the testimony of, you know, the vestiges of the great cities of, of that time. And we know of the practices of the temples. Um, to Baal and Moloch and things like that. And we know that the temples were actually also the administrative center where um, trade or let's say, you know, the people's harvest would be brought to the granary of the kingdom. And that's where the first money was invented, the first commercial money. Money has existed in many forms in tribal cultures that never needed to use them for commerce because they were gifting economies, sharing economies. They were economies that were predicated on a different system of value and values. When you start having organized commerce, and it happens around the temple, and that is where you start having the origin of the banker or bankster class because they're in charge of the bullion and they start doing all the false money. Right. The reason I was asking is because by the time of Christ, they were already extremely good at all this, clearly. And so I'm looking at this going, well, where did these people come from? They didn't just walk out of the jungle and say, let's capture everybody's minds and get filthy rich and keep them poor. And the other thing is having studied quite a lot of ancient civilizations and even a number of books and documentaries and authors and experts on extraterrestrial interaction with human beings. If you go all the way back to the Sumerian tablets, they talk about gods warring with each other right here on Earth and, and fighting for control. So it seems to me that there's a possibility that this may be an extraterrestrial intelligence that's been implanted in select human beings because it seems too masterful and evolved. I mean, I, I read, like I told you, Merlin Stone's book, When, Women, when God Was a Woman. And she talks about the Levites, and I'm listening to her description of the Levites, and, and they sound exactly like Bill Gates and Fauci and, uh, you know, Biden and the people behind them. I'm like, well, nothing's changed at all, but I just couldn't conceive of how a group of people like the Levites could just all of a sudden appear out of the jungle or a natural environment because it's so malicious. It's just almost like not even in the human gene to be that malicious. That's just my yeah. my perception Agreed. of it. Uh, it's more it's more than a perception. Um, I mean, the whole Anunnaki thing. What gave rise to the Mesopotamian cultures is is the Anunnaki thing. And I mean, yes, as you know, from the ancient texts, the uh, gods and priests of those civilizations 
are very clearly descended as half half bloods um, of extraterrestrials, interdimensionals that could take a physical form at least part of the time and mated with human women. And then they just the arc of history here is basically that from Babylonia, Babyl in, you had a whole bunch of Hebrews who were taken hostage um, or in Babylonia. And in Babylonia, some of them learned the tricks of banking. And then they returned to their own lands and they perfected that. At the same time as the high priests were perfecting the story of Yahweh, went hand in hand. Okay? There is a continuity. How much of an ethnic continuity? I'm not versed in, in that. And I don't think anyone is sufficiently versed. A number of people have been working on the issue of the blood lineages all the way back to ancient sources with hybrid bloodlines. Um, and I think that is Freddie Freddy Silva is one of them. I talked to him about that. It's very, very plausible. And, you know, until but we, we shall not, I think, have full certainty until we have access to things like the Vatican Library. Well, I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> well, things are changing very, very fast now. So, you know, things things are dark now, but, um, well, we have to go through a collective dark night of the soul of human of humanity before we can come we out the other side, right? So that's exactly where we are. And in that dark night, well, we need to know, we need to know and not just be, um, not just be submissive to a false dark. Let's go through a real dark and not be poisoned by a false dark. So, okay. So the that's that's one that's one aspect to answer your question. Another aspect is the Kazarian connection. Okay. Now, on these issues, I'm definitely not sufficiently well versed to say anything, um, you know, that I would deem authoritative or that I would be happy to say myself, but it looks very, very plausible that, you know, there were branches that migrated from ancient Sumeria, Babylonia. Some took a south route and some took a north route via Khazaria. And then the Khazars, when they were defeated, I think by the Russians, they took their their families, their gold, their whatnot, and they dropped in every country that they traversed, they dropped a few of their own to start seeding something. Okay? I don't want to say any more than that, but these lineages seem to be very real. And it's not just the blood lineages, it's the lineages of the secret knowledge, the secret esoterics. Because otherwise you can't explain why there is such a continuity between what we have found out about the structure of ancient religion, um, religion under the, uh, the Christian God, and how it transposes quite, I mean, literally, into the religion of the money God, of the scientism God, 
It's the same thing. If you look at the institutions, the priesthoods, the secrecy, the resource, the extractive capability, um, the, the, the territorial implantation expansively to try and absorb the whole world, it's absolutely the same. And so, so this is explained more in detail in the book. Perhaps we don't need to spend too much time on the, um, you know, these technicalities. It's, um, it's important, for, you know, I think for the audience to understand that there is a structure that runs across what we call religion and what operates like a religion in the secular form of money, God, science, God, even though we would not call it a religion. But you will notice that in the alternative media, more and more people are saying, oh, the religion of scientism, oh, the high priests of uh, whatever, extractive capitalism, they're using these words, which means that they know subconsciously that these things are religions. There is, it's the continuity from very ancient times that it's important for us to understand. Hello, everybody. If exercise is something important to you that you are sure not to miss a day of, it's important to remember that you don't get stronger in the gym, you get stronger when you rest. If you have a hard time committing yourself to exercising enough to keep yourself fit and healthy, then learning how to do it quickly and effectively is where the magic is. There's a fine line between being in the gym and overtraining and not doing enough to keep yourself fit, but there's always a sweet spot that brings you into balance, contributing to harmony in your life. If your goal is to be your fittest while being highly efficient with your time so you can engage other important aspects of your life and produce well-being, then I've written an ebook just for you, Paul Check's Big Bang Workouts. In the book, I will teach you my Big Bang approach to fitness. You will learn what makes something a Big Bang exercise so you can identify them or even create them for yourself, how to perform some of my simple but powerful Big Bang exercises. I offer three specific Big Bang workouts, simple program design techniques you can create your own Big Bang workouts with, two important rules for maximizing your workout results that apply to everyone from novice exercises to the world's best professional athletes. If you put all the information I share in Paul Check's Big Bang workouts to work in your life, you will get fitter, you'll have more energy, and you'll have more time to work in, do some art, and spend time with your loved ones. All the things that make a complete, healthy, happy human being. Get your copy of the ebook for free now at chekinstitute.com forward slash big bang. That's chekinstitute.com forward slash big bang. Enjoy Paul Check's Big Bang Workouts. You'll never feel better. I had to ask just because. I don't like having a gaping hole in my consciousness or it makes it hard for me to stay with you. And I figured if I'm wondering it, other people would be wondering it too. So uh, thank you for that clarification. Um, and feel free to uh, continue. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I really wanted to get that clear because I think it helps us understand how is it that this came about. Yeah, Paul, all your questions are absolutely welcome because, I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm in it. So, you know, um, and your questions are always very good. So <laughs> no need to apologize. <laughs> and basically, what is the net effect of all of this on us humans, mind control, um, non-ownership of our 
well, not only mind, but also body. You know, if we have an ancestry of being slaves in the gold mines of the gods, in the plantations, in, you know, wherever, we all have in our bloodlines as human beings the memory of being totally body controlled, mind controlled, soul controlled. We all have it in our ancestry and in our, you know, uh, repertoire of past lives. And, you know, the sooner we realize that, the sooner we can, you know, climb out of it, heal. So it's that power that they have over us, which is absolutely phenomenal, at the hands of an expert class of priests. They can call themselves money managers, big investors, um, you know, Nobel Prize chemists and scientists. They're all high priests. We need to understand that. But, you know, when, when talking about the way we have been had as a human species for six millennia um, in an increasingly expert fashion, we must never forget that there have always been the, the people that the church kindly called heretics. Heresy. Like me, like you and me. <laughs> exactly. The, the, the word heresy, heresia in ancient Greek means choice. The people who chose differently, the people who chose to follow what they felt was the authentic calling from inside themselves. Those people have always existed. And even, I mean, what I find also very important to uh, accept is that even the brainwashed masses have been creative in their ways to accommodate the brainwashing the false beliefs, and to be creative with them. Paul, you were referring to the art of the Christian church. I agree with you in terms of the effect, but I would also like to point out, I have spent, you know, in the 20 plus years I lived in, uh, in, in Europe, I spent a lot of time in museums, in churches, looking at especially the paintings of the Renaissance. And I was looking at them as a, you know, I'm a woman who was indoctrinated into the Christian faith. And at 10, I just blurted out to my parents that I'm sorry, I'm not going to church anymore. I don't believe that's it. It's all bullshit. So, you know, I'm, I'm an ex. When I was imbibing... When I was imbibing all that art, I was not paying any attention to the, uh, the subject matter. You know, the Christ doing this and Mary Magdalene doing that and the apostles. I was completely not interested in that. What I found fascinating were the folds in the dark indigo robe of such and such a saint. The, you know, the way the landscape was exquisitely painted. My eyes were drawn to those things and I would fall into a swoon into those natural colors and the artfulness of the painters who had managed. I read them as multiple level paintings. There's the overt message, the brainwashing, which is 
served by the beauty and the art of the artist. But behind that, I am feeling that the artist is celebrating nature, the beauty of shapes, the beauty of natural pigments on which they work like crazy. And um, so I think it's important for us to understand that people have, in spite of it all, perhaps because of it all, they have taken the false food, you know, the GMO beliefs that they were being fed, and still they metabolized them and they made beautiful, great things. So, you know, let's bear that in mind. We have not been pure slaves throughout. If we'd been pure slaves, they would have eradicated, they would have, you know, they would have decimated us thousands of years ago. It's precisely because we endure, because we are capable of creativity, that they've been able to carry on with their game for so long. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, from my own life experience, I've found if you give yourself time to process pain and you're not rushing around frantically trying to get someone to take it away, but you actually spend time with it, that it does inspire a tremendous amount of creativity. A huge amount of what I teach in my institute came from me working through my own physical, emotional, and mental pain and and looking around for other people that it, that had healed from similar challenges so I could get ideas about how they did it. And I, I think in the grand scheme of things that, you know, pain gives you something that you're surely likely to aspire to um, grow out of or, you know, healing would be growing out of. So I agree that as dark as all this is, it is also a window of opportunity. The, the real issue is, for me, is how do we avoid repeating the same pains over and over again unnecessarily due to unconscious program behavior and trauma behavior, which, you know, you, you outline the, the functions of religions in your book. And it, it's, it's quite a shocking expose of, you know, some of the, some of the things about religion that religious people don't actually think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. That you've opened up a really, really, really big philosophical one there. <laughs> and perhaps that's a good, that's a good transition into the topic of poverty. Would you agree? Because yes, you've looked, you've looked at the the segments on poverty throughout the book. I reference the growth of the emergence and the growth of the concept and the reality of poverty um, amongst the human people, expropriated, exploited, sacrificed, etc., by the religious systems, and. Poverty is a topic that is much, 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 um, you know, covered in all sorts of uh, all sorts of literature, including you know the so-called well-meaning development literature. They never come close to the fundamental spiritual, fun, spiritual and physical hinging of it. If we if we consider traditional peasant peoples. Their acquisition of the concept of poverty is extremely recent. And, you know, it was my um, uh, challenging privilege 
to spend a lot of time in India, and I've also been since then over 15, 17 years in Thailand. I've been living in peasant communities for all that time. And I've been puzzling, coming from the Western world, with you know the cliched understanding of poverty, how the hell are these people happy when they're clearly very poor? And how do they understand their poverty? That is a huge topic. I'm not going to go into it. I just like to say that it does perhaps authorize me to talk about poverty in a way that is not conventional in the educated Western world, where I would say that most educated Western people haven't a clue of, um, I'm sorry to say this, and I'm not sorry to say this, how poor we are. When I got accepted into this esoteric grassroots movement in India, I was asked, why do you come from so far? You take so much trouble on these muddy roads of us, of ours. And, you know, you could live in your air-conditioned, educated luxury and all that. What the hell do you need to come and do with us here? And I just very frankly and humbly said, I may have more than you in material terms, but I am poor in respect of your wisdom. You are rich in wisdom. That was the answer they needed to take me in. And I already knew that was true. I was not, I was not you know, finessing or, or messing around. I knew it was true. And um, so I've been able to look at the aspects of spiritual wealth and material poverty and you know, how these different things work together or not together. It's very, very, very complex. But you know, when you say that we need to go through the pain, I think one thing would be very useful would be to realize how poor we are and how much richer perhaps some people who still have a plot of land that they can grow organic by default. Um, that person is way, way, way happier than people who have a hell of a lot of stuff. So, you know, being poor is not just a matter of not having money. One of the things I'd like to interject is that in our culture, we think that you're successful if you have enough money to buy the stuff you want. But in the cultures you're referring to, and I know because I came from a family that didn't have a lot of money and we were farmers, they're, they spend their time with life. It seems the more wealth and abundance that people have from a Western perspective, the less life they have in their life. You know, it's like try finding a tree to do Tai Chi with in New York City. The only ones I could find were, were barricaded by razor wire. And so, you know, having an acre or two of land and having to farm organically by default. Yes, you, you may not have electric cars and uh, a flat screen television and the latest iPhone. But you have a relationship with the sun, with the earth, with the seasons, with the insects, with the animals, with the plants. So you're actually living in what I would call the actual reality from which we biologically and spiritually emerge. So you're not actually interfacing with a fake reality, i.e. the digital reality or the plastic reality or look at my cool car or I got leather pants. 
and a d degree, but on the inside, I'm completely lost and confused. And if, if the electricity goes off, I don't know who I am or what to do with myself. To me, that's real poverty. Absolutely. Well, you've got the message, Paul. <laughs> and I think it's a good thing that you, that you were born, you know, in, in a farming family. It gave you that grounding in, in, in real reality, in nature. You know, uh, I was born a city kid and I was raised a city kid. And so, you know, making the transition to becoming a, you know, dirty nails peasant took a long time. It took a really long time. But, but I, you know, I can only urge people to try and understand that the real reality which is the reality of our bodies. It's made of the elements that make up Earth, the food that we eat if we're still eating real food, and contrast that with all the fake food, the fast food, the fake food, the junk food, and the uh, virtually recreated uh, lab, uh, recombined synthetic protein stuff that you know, they're hoping to feed us in the, in the new dystopia. Uh, you know, I mean, we are reaching the point where the clash or the difference between the false and the real is so phenomenal to those of us, at least, who have a sense of the real. But for those who've been brought up in the fake, it's really hard. It's really hard because they have no, they're afraid of the real. They've been taught to be afraid of the sun, to be afraid of nature. It's full of bugs and, you know, you're going to catch Lyme disease and yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're afraid of their own body because now they are asymptomatic carriers. And you have to be afraid of nature, which is the ultimate bioterrorist. So that, you know. For, <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you laugh, but people believe this. People believe this. No, I'm laughing because it's it's true, but it's so sick and so twisted. Yeah. It's 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 like I'm laughing as I'm being tortured by the reality of your statements. I'm not laughing at you by any means. I'm just saying, you know, when you get people that are that lost and confused, it, uh, it, it's, it's scary because there's so many of them that those of us that still want to be on the land and want to have natural immunity are at threat from all the, you know, the, the control bots, the zombies that are not thinking and, and don't even realize that they're so disconnected from reality that they wouldn't have a chance of survival if the power went off for two weeks. Yeah. Well, okay, we could carry on, on and on, I think, on that topic. But basically, there's one very big chapter in our poverty, which is our loss of nature. Poverty is a multifaceted thing that affects us all. I, you know, I can't repeat that enough. We've talked about poverty of nature, which... Not surprisingly for you and your audience, Paul, hinges on poverty of body and poverty of health, obviously, which is epitomized today by the fact that we are governed by the god of disease, artificially induced by false medicine, false this, that, and the other. Okay? I mean, your audience knows these things, so we don't need to, we don't need to go into these things in depth. But... Uh, it's really, you know, I know that you have taught so much in terms of what people can 
and should do, you know, to restore their vitality, their real health, their, you know. For most people on the planet, that's not possible. You know, it's either unattainable or expensive or, you know, this, that, and the other. It's, it works for certain, you know, classes. If people... I think people cannot recover their their real wealth, the wealth that is their body, and we'll talk more about that, you know, in the next segment. And they can't recover their health if they're not recovering nature, the nature of themselves and their uh, anchor in, um, in 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 nature. And I think we need to remember, you know, this has happened historically, and is now accelerating to a kind of final crescendo. If you look historically, the peasant cultures that were subjugated by the religions, by the religious institutions of power and civilization, they were exploited for their labor. They, if they had a bad season, they would have to go into debt. Debt for them was a, an, a point of honor in traditional cultures. So they got into debt, which forced them out of their sense of honor to betray the sense of honor that they have in their body by indenturing themselves to the slave masters. And if they could not indenture themselves, they would give away a child or a, or a wife or what have you. So, okay, that's... And we talked about original sin in the previous time. Debt and original sin are rooted in the same thing. If Christians believe in original sin, they are still rooted in the phenomenon of debt, artificially created by the banksters to create more wealth by, by a slave driving, exploiting the labor of what was at the time only peasantry. Okay? The mass of the population was the peasantry. Over time, let's say, uh, well, over time into the um, time of the ancient testament and then the time of the Christian religion, the majority of the population were still peasants. They were then serfs. It was a different system of exploitation. They paid their taxes, imposed on them in kind, and they were brainwashed by the religion. But at the same time, they retained their culture, their kind of aboriginal cultures, which were rooted in nature. They were still living in nature. They were eating very simple food, but they were basically healthier than the big rich people who were eating, you know, delicacies. And they lived a kind of parallel life. But they were still basically rich in spite of their poverty. They were still rich with their own naturally rooted cultures. And that is what the church went after increasingly um, increasingly adamantly over the centuries. There were the heresies. Okay, those were specific movements of people who stood up against the church. But what about the mass of the people, the peasantry, our ancestors? It took centuries for the church to eradicate their beliefs. 
Have you ever found yourself feeling frustrated because you can't find food worth eating in airports when working on the road, traveling, or when pressed for time and you have to rush out of the house before you can make something you can trust as real food? I know I sure have. Well, I've got a beautiful surprise for you. I found Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley has extremely high standards and use only the highest quality, cleanest sources for their animal and plant food products, and they have excellent jerky meats, neatly packaged so you can take them anywhere and never be stuck without something great to feed your beautiful body and stabilize your mind. I love their pasture-raised turkey sticks in their original or cranberry orange flavor. I'm allergic to beef, but Angie, Penny, and the kids absolutely love their grass-fed beef sticks, which come in jalapeno, summer sausage, garlic summer sausage, teriyaki, and original flavors. I can assure you Paleo Valley's meat sticks are so good you could literally make a meal out of them or have them as snacks and you'd feel satisfied and satiated and know you've fed your body top quality nutrition that will make your cells dance for joy. Paleo Valley has lots of other great additions to meet your food nutrition needs and their website is loaded with great articles, podcasts, recipes, and more. Go to paleovalley.com, that's P-A-L-E-O valley.com, and get your 15% Living 4D discount by using the code CHECK15. That's small K-C-H-E-K, 15 on checkout. The whole family will be satiated, nourished, and glad that you did. Enjoy. I do need to mention a very little-known episode once again, of the Christian Church. Is that that council? Exactly. Yes, I want to hear about that. That blew my mind. Right. The council of uh, whatever it is, Nantes, in France. I've tried to look up this council on internet. It's strange how there is only... You can't really find it, you know. Not with... with a normal level. I would have had to go and dig very, very far, for which I didn't have time. Um, so I didn't go and dig very far. I trust the author of, of, of the book where I found this information. So this council in Nantes. In the ninth century, the church is already very, very powerful across Europe and is coming uh, around to really grappling with the what it calls paganism in the Christian masses. You know, people were still doing their pagan dances around the churches. They'd go to, you know, Holy Mass. They'd do that thing. And then they'd have their, you know, pagan rituals close to the church or even inside the church. And, you know, still in the year 1000, the church was still raving and ranting about this. They imposed the form of Gregorian chant to be the only kind of music that was accepted, you know, in the church, and you could no longer have the, you know, songs of harvest and the songs of equinoxes that you would have in the pagan culture. But anyway, in this particular um, council, the church decides to go after not the people, but the trees. Now, the early geographers, historians, of Rome had marveled, they traveled all over the empire, and they had marveled at the very, 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 you know, thousand-year-old trees all over ancient Europe. Now, the church ordered that all these trees be pulled down, uh, all of them across the territory. And um, 
It's worth quoting what the decision was. The order was handed down to bishops and their ministers to, and I quote, apply the utmost dedication to the task of uprooting and burning the trees consecrated to demons that the people venerate to the point of not daring to cut a single branch. Now, in India, and even here in Thailand, where we still have the ancient, you know, uh, holy trees, I, I understand, I understand in my flesh, I understand in my soul what it would have been to be a peasant in those days when, you know, this guardian of your culture, of your ecosystem, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, as far as memory could not go back, would be cut, uprooted, and burnt. I mean, you know, this was the burning of the living culture, of the living soul, of the people in their connection with nature. So that hurts. You know, I can't... We could put lots of adjectives on that. It just hurts. So, you know, the devastation, as this author says... The effects, and I'm quoting him, the effects of the decisions of the Nantes Council were the greatest natural disaster wrought by man at the expense of wild nature. Nothing can compare to it in terms of ecology, culture, economy, and above all, evolution. So, you know, this is where we need to realize for good that we are part and parcel of nature and the war against humankind is a war against nature because we are part and parcel of the same continuum. So, I mean, you know, this is another point that, you know, I can't insist too much on. And what you start feeling here is that the culture of those priests who decided on that kind of extraordinary measure, going against the ecosystems within which the peasants actually fed their grain into the system, okay? In economic and ecological terms, it doesn't make sense. But killing those ancient, powerful beauties and ascribing it to the cult of demons. Basically, if you read what this really means, you put the demons in a different place and you realize that we're dealing with a cult of death, unnatural inflicted death. And you can apply that lens to the situation that's happening to us today. Now, that's poverty of nature that hinges on something really deep in us, which is our poverty of soul. When you've been indoctrinated to believe in unattainable gods, as opposed to believing 
in not just believing, knowing that your reality is real, that it's both very physical and very multidimensional, as ancient peoples and peasant people in certain parts of the world still are today. You're living, you're living in a reality that is it's so multidimensional, it's magical. And at the same time, it's physical, it's at your fingertips. That's what we used to have. It's been replaced by false beliefs, false gods, false rituals, false this, that, and the other, where your soul is never really sated, never really fed, never really able to go deep and discover deeper interdimensional things. So what we're dealing with is a poverty of soul in modern humans who are the you know end result of that evolution. We need to consider also that our ancestors who were all those peasants with the Industrial Revolution, when faith in the church started to wane in a big way, it had already in the Renaissance, but the Jesuits took care of, you know, Rekindling that. We don't need to, the Jesuits are mentioned in the book, but we don't need to sort of dwell on that. That's, you know, that, that's, it's an important rabbit hole, but I'd rather we stayed focused on the poverty aspect here. So there's an acceleration with the Industrial Revolution where we don't need people working the land so much anymore because we're going to start doing large scale agriculture with modern methods that are going to be raping Mother Earth. We also need a hell of a lot of labor in our factories. So this is the time when, for both modern agriculture to start and to feed the um, machine monster, um, people are taken off the land. It's done either through laws, the enclosure laws in Britain, for instance, which completely remodeled the territory, or other you know, um, land tenure arrangements that became untenable for the people to stay or outright um, displacement of populations, which was done especially in the colonies. In the colonies, you'd have whole populations moved around. It's not the Soviet Union that invented that. It was, it was you know, done extensively by the British Empire in India. And so you have all these people who are losing nature, losing everything that they had in nature. They had their plot of land, they had a bit of organic by default food, they had, a, you know, the medicinal things, they had access to the commons, the local forest where they could gather mushrooms and, um, and herbs and things like that. What they lost was also the knowledge which came along with all of that. If you start looking at everything that was lost by divorcing us from nature, it's absolutely phenomenal. It's health, body, sense of your bodily integrity and your owning your own body, your um, rootedness in culture, a, a culture that is attuned to your natural environment. It's loss of soul. It's loss of, loss of so many things. And it's also the impoverishment of your emotions. Those of us who live on the land have a quality of emotional connection with the trees, with the birds, 
and consequently with everything else that we do and with our sense of empathy that is very different from most purely urban people. You know, I see from my own evolution that my empathy runs really, really deep um, as opposed to, you know, a lot of people I know in the big city who they'll pay lip service. It's lip service empathy. It's only, it's barely skin deep. And, you know, this is not, I'm not, you know, blaming them for it. They just don't have access to the full repertoire of our normal um, birthright for us to explore our emotions in full. And they're dominated by fear, generally unbeknownst to themselves. Whereas when you have a full gamut of emotions and you can really feel, you know when you're in fear and you can do something about it. You can go through the fear, you can alchemize the fear, right? But, I mean, you know, the poverty of, of, of emotion is it's also the emotional distortion by trauma. We are all traumatized. You know, even if we've had a very happy life in this life, we are still carrying the traumatic imprint of past lives, of our intergenerational uh, heritage, and of the whole traumatized field of humankind around the globe. We, we all hold all that. The sooner we can come to terms with that, the sooner we can heal. As long as we're refusing to see, watch that in the, you know, in, look it straight in the eye, well, we remain in denial. But, you know, okay, emotional poverty, if anybody is familiar with having to deal with narcissists, well, you know exactly what I mean. You know what I mean in terms of the emotions of the narcissist and what it does to your own emotions. It puts you in a small emotional box where your repertoire is, is totally constrained and where you, you cannot access your, your creative emotions, the way your emotions will feed your creativity. So, you know, lack of self-love, lack of self-trust, distorted self-love, you know, all the, all the things that go with narcissism and codependency, we don't need to go into that. I'm just flagging the fact that we have poverty of emotions. Poverty of time. Now, even the peasants in the old days who had to pay all that grain or wool or whatever in taxes to the, to, to, to the church and to their noble masters, they had time for all sorts of rituals, um, you know, songs and dance, festivities. And I'm still seeing it out in the, you know, in the villages uh, in Asia where I have lived and live. Yes, you know, the peasants work, but basically there is very intense work at certain seasons which have to do with, you know, the preparing of the land and the harvest. Uh, but if they're not running after money from cash crops, if they're overall self-sufficient, and perhaps they can have, you know, some kind of skill that they can make a little bit of pocket money out of, they're masters of their time. You want to lie down in the hammock? 
You lie down in the hammock at any time you bloody want to lie down in your hammock. Um, you want to take a week off doing farm work? Well, you know, perhaps you've had a bad fall and you need to rest. It's totally feasible in those economies. And what is very, very little known is, and this has been well-documented anthropologically, there are these primitive cultures of Aboriginal cultures, you know, where the colonists, the colonizers, tried to instill a proper work ethic into these idle, lazy natives. And it didn't work. Well, because those people valued time that they did not understand in the same terms of time that we understand as modern urban people. They had a wealth of time to do all sorts of things. And they spent just enough time doing whatever farm work they need, needed. And, and, you know, they would improvise some kind of artisanal basket or toys for the kids or whatever. They had, you know, with free time, suddenly there's all sorts of creativity that comes up that you would never have out of a willful creativity, um, carving out 30 minutes a day to, you know, play the drum or whatever in the city. It's, I mean, it's completely different. And they had deliberate great feasts to be able to use up all the surplus so that in the absence of any surplus, nobody could claim to take control over anybody else. It maintained the egalitarian framework of the society. So you didn't work a lot to accumulate, you know, capital, surplus. And basically, you lived a very happy life that was rich in its simplicity, whereas our modern urban life is poor in its complexity, if I may, you know, make that sort of comparison. Whenever, whenever it's a good time, I have a couple things I'd like to share. Right. I think just one last thing. Poverty okay. of beauty. Poverty of beauty. When you live out in natural nature and you've crafted some parts of it, you know, for your fields and your orchards and your gardens and this, that and the other, you live in an intrinsically beautiful environment. You're constantly inspired by the natural beauty that you may want to emulate in a painting or in, you know, inventing something or whatever. But Living in these artificial concrete environments of cities, ah, uh, well, you're definitely living in a culture of ugliness. And, you know, I, I've lived 20 years of my life in Paris, which, we, which is arguably the most, if not, well, one of the most, if not the most beautiful city in the world. And I used to be permanently, you know, ecstatic walking around the streets of Paris, even in, you know, the direst moments that I that I lived. Over the years that I've been living in nature, when I go back to Paris, oh yeah, 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 it's beautiful, but it doesn't touch me anymore. It doesn't touch me anymore. It doesn't work anymore. There is the beauty of, I think, you know, the real well wellspring of inspiration for our creativity has to be the natural beauty, the colors, the shapes, the textures, 
all the things that we get with nature that feed all of our senses. We need to have that to be able to connect with our own sense of what beauty I want to take to bring out into the world out of myself. So, yeah, I'm not going to go into any further detail on that. I think we've covered the major aspects of poverty where I think, you know, everyone who is listening to this or who will read this honestly will be able to recognize um, the aspects of poverty that afflict us, modern people. I've gone through that process um, and I, you know, I can tell you, now that I'm living with the dirtiest nails in the world, uh, out in nature, I feel very rich. And, you know, money, okay, it's still needed, but it, it doesn't doesn't run the world for me anymore. P3OM by Bioptimizers is hands down one of the most important supplements to have on you everywhere you go. If you're traveling, if you go to work, if you're going to friend's house to eat, this product will knock out food poisoning and almost any kind of gut disorder from viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever could irritate your gut so quickly. It's mind-blowing. I have been using this product since Wade Lightheart first turned me on to it, and he's the formulator of it. And I've got Wade here to tell us how it works, but I just want you to hear it from me. I have all my clients use this. I try to get it to friends, to family members, because it is really like your own bodyguard. So, Wade, how in the world does this thing work so well every time? Well, as you know, we're very research-oriented, and we have literally a university in Croatia that we do microbiome testing with our labs of PhDs to find out what's the most effective formulation. And we are quickly moving into the post-antibiotic world where we need to cultivate super probiotics. We all heard of super bad bacteria in hospitals and stuff that are antibiotic resistance. But what we did, we worked with a medical doctor that was able to take an aggressive strain of L. plantarum, which is a very aggressive strain, and then put it through almost like a BUDS camp, a Navy SEALs training, where we subjected this particular probiotic to a toxic environment. We ran a sine wave through it. And out of that survived only about somewhere between two and 3%. We then take that and grow it on very special food. We feed them just like you would feed a great athlete. You feed them special food and the probiotics develop unique capabilities. We have a U.S. patent that is so powerful. I can't read it on the airwaves because we'd get canceled. But what I can say is when you put P3OM in your body, it goes out and breaks down any undigested protein whether it's in your gut or through your blood system. And it becomes your Navy SEALs defense force, if you will, to go out and wipe out whatever pathogen might come in your body. You just need more of these guys to overwhelm it. It takes it out. It cleans up any messes. And for the last 18 years, I've been using P3OM daily. And I can honestly say I've never been sick during that time. If I feel something coming on, I just double down my dosage take four caps every night. If I get a little, if I'm traveling, I take twice that. And it's been great. A lot of our people do it. And it's one of our best-selling products. And it's available to your audience. Just go to p3om.com slash living40. Put in Paul 10, get a 10% discount. 
And if it's not the best probiotic you've ever had in your life, you get 100% of your money back. That's from us at Bioptimizers. That's our guarantee for you. Go get it. It's for real. I love the stuff. Thank you, Wade. I want to share that Penny and I lived moving nonstop for 25 years. We were making it around the world twice a year for me to give lectures and conferences all over the world, run our education, advanced training workshops. And there was times we were on the road for four months nonstop. In fact, the first year we bought our house in Vista, we had no furniture because we were actually not home long enough to do anything but wash our clothes and get on an airplane. We did not have time to go shop for furniture. So we had a, a table to sit at for dinner, but literally the house had no furniture other than our bed. And what happened to me over that time was I progressively had the experience of a deep soul loss because I couldn't ground myself. I couldn't get my feet on the earth. I was in cities and and I would literally finish a lecture, have to run, jump in a cab, race to the airport. I'd land in another city. I half the time couldn't remember what hotel room I was in because I was still remembering the last city. I was severely jet lagged. And, and ultimately, that's what led me to a midlife crisis is doing that for so long that I just lost touch with my roots. And whenever I would come home, I would just lay on the ground and hang out with my trees and just be in the yard. And I would feel like I was being reborn again, revitalized again. So I, I know very well what it feels like from personal experience, you know, because I came from the earth and I came from a farming family. So it's built into me to know what it's like to live in the forest and to be in nature. And, and so it's always been in my soul. And there's a story, I don't remember where I learned it, but it's very appropriate. And the story is this, um, a businessman goes on vacation into deep Mexico and he's sitting on front of his cottage each morning reading the newspaper or whatever. And he looks out and he sees this Mexican man come out, throw a net in his boat, and he goes off fishing for a few hours and he comes back and he's got a big net with fish in it. And he goes to the market, sells a bunch. Then he goes home and relaxes and plays with his kids. And this businessman's watching and his business mind's conjuring up ideas. And finally, one day he walks over to the Mexican fisherman and he says, I've got an idea for you. I'm willing to invest the money to get you a fleet of fishing boats so you can go out and catch a lot more fish and make a lot of money. And the Mexican fisherman looks at him and says, what for? He says, so you can have more of what you need and spend time with your kids. And the Mexican man looks at him and says, I have that right now. If I have 37 fishing boats, I will be doing nothing but dealing with problems and taking care of people, and I will have no life at all. And so the businessman was kind of put in checkmate there, and he didn't know what to say. And I think part of the disease that we've gotten is that we think more is better, more is better, more money, more houses, more cars. And, and it, it's just, it's a dangerous trap to get into as opposed to just 
having enough to really live. And I think that's one of the things you pointed out in your book so beautifully is how the peasants and, and the natives really, and you can see this, by the way, in um, a great book called 10,000 Years from Eden, Metabolic Man by Charles Heiser Worthen, who's a naturalist. And he surveyed native cultures and showed that most native cultures around the world could do all the necessary hunting and gathering and work that they needed to do in about three and a half hours a day. And the rest of the time they spent doing arts, crafts, dancing, singing, telling stories and playing with their children. And so like you also highlight in your book, so what do we have now? We've got people working eight, 10, 12, 14 hours a day to compensate for credit card bills. They have no time to play with their children, no time for themselves. And when they get home, they're so exhausted of the rat race, they have to drink alcohol and do drugs just to figure out how to get out of the reality that they've been sucked into. What you're saying here, I mean, what, you, the, 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 what you're illustrating right now, you are speaking the entrapment of people to the money god, to the disease god, to the science god. And, uh, I mean, you know, they're all there. And, you know, eventually the, uh, the person is going to have, like you, a sort of dark night of the soul or a crisis. And they're going to go and look for solace in some kind of creed. And they may become entrapped in the business of a false god. So, you know, we've got all the gods who work together now. When you only had one Christian god or one Mesopotamian god, to whom you had to give your labor and, okay, and you had to give your first newborn child in sacrifice. You paid a heavy, heavy price. You really paid a heavy price. But they, you were not yet completely entrapped in, you know, what we have now. The entrapment of people now to all these different systems that we think are separate, but they're all operating to the same blueprint. They're all operated by priesthoods with different specializations of the same basic methodology. Yeah? So... Yeah, well, all you got to do is look at Bill Gates. He's got his hands in every one of them. Exactly, yeah. They're he's all, controlling, he's controlling, all, they all he's controlling they all medicine. Do. Yeah, yeah. He's controlling medicine. He's controlling money. He's controlling land. He's trying to control farming. He's completely and utterly stealing the soul of humanity. But, I mean, he's just a poster child. They all, all the big ag, big pharma, big oil, big money, big everything, they're all mutually invested in each other, okay? And then they're, they're owned, you know, by the above two big monsters, the Vanguard, Vanguard and uh, BlackRock. So yeah, they all, they're all intermarried you know, in actual matrimony and intermarried in money and intermarried in their esoteric occult methodologies. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people are trapped. Plus what, you know, in the old days, people were illiterate. They didn't get the education that we have now. So their education came from their natural cultures. They knew stuff in nature. They were a hell of a lot more intelligent than we are now. Now our educational systems have completely brainwashed us. When I lived in India, I, I was fascinated to note that the kids 
who were the, the kids who were going to school now were the second generation of compulsory universal primary education. And they were not terribly impressive. Their parents, the, the, you know, the parents would have been mainly the fathers because in the first generation, women hardly, you know, poor women did not get education. But the guys who had learned to read and write, just that, combined with their illiterate intelligence, the phenomenal memory of illiterate people, it was fantastic because they could go and pick up information in books that sharpened the illiterate intelligence that they had. That, you know, that was really striking for me. I met some, the brilliance of some of the people who were no longer illiterate, but they were the first generation to have access to reading and writing. I have never met that quality of intelligence, you know, even in the best of Western polymath intelligent PhDs, because their intelligence is, is still... It's rooted in the complexity and the totality of life, you know, and nature. Um, and, you know, those are the people who gave me the kind of initiation that we'll be talking about in the next episode. Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to share before we move on. One, one of the Indian chiefs I've studied was Chief Seattle. And in the books I've studied on Chief Seattle, one of the things he points out is when the U.S. government came to him to try to negotiate purchasing his land or the land he was in charge of. And, and, you know, he was in charge of many, many tribes, the whole, a whole region in the Pacific Northwest. One of the things they said to him to try to coerce him to let them take the land was we will provide education for your children and they will be much more skilled and, and capable people. And his response was immediately no. The last thing we want is our children in your education systems, because every single Indian child that's gone to one of your schools has come back functionally useless. They can't hunt. They can't fish. They can't create anything useful to the tribe. That's the last thing we want. So we, we see the difference between, you know, the education that people get now is actually, as you know, indoctrination to fit into the system so that they are actually a cog in the wheel and they burn themselves out trying to live on that treadmill of, of always chasing you know, something flashy, the next car, the next phone, the next house, the next status symbol. Um, and then a couple of things I wanted to share. Uh, for resources for people, one of my favorite books by Carl Jung is called Man in Search of His Soul. And it goes really into the issues of what the human soul is and how we've lost it. And even talks about what Jung had to do to maintain connection to his soul. For example, you know, Jung died in 1961. I was born in 61, so that was 60 years ago. But Jung saw that that he was losing his soul. So what he did was he took the time to build his own beautiful, big multi-story work home in, in Bolagen on a lake in, in Zurich. And he built it by hand. He built it with, he built it out of stone. He did, he had cut stones. He carved stones. It took him years to do it. 
he used to, when he went through a crisis himself, he would take his little toy soldier set and sit on the beach and, and let the little boy live. He had no running water and no electricity in the house. He did everything natural because he realized if he didn't do that, that he was dying inside and he had to recapture his soul. So Man in Search of His Soul by Carl Jung. Another one is um, The Immortality Key by, by Brian Marescu is a, is a fairly recent book, but it's got tremendously well-researched scholarship and shows just as clearly as you do how the Christian church just did everything to wipe out the pagan cultures and nature worship and just utterly destroy people's connection to nature and to anything other than what they wanted them to worship and much more. And there's another great book that I got called Fire in the Head about Celtic spirituality. And that book talks all about the Druids and the Celtic spiritual movement, but goes into great detail exactly what you're saying in your book about how the Christians just did everything to kill any connection to nature, trees, whatever they had to do, and you know, slaughtered people, took their land, took everything from them. So uh, I don't remember the name of that book, but it's called Fire in the Head. It's about Celtic spirituality. And in my search, I, I don't remember any other book by that name. But I looked into that book because I wanted to study the figure Cernanos. I don't know if you're familiar with Cernanos, who is the god of nature. He's sort of the functional equivalent of Pan, except he's got a very athletic-looking male body with horns on his head, and, and he is sometimes depicted with the feet of it and the lower body of a deer. Um, but I have sculptures of him. In fact, here is one right here. That's what, for you, that if you ever get to see the video, but Anna, there's Serenos right there. Oh, wow. So you can see, and there's his lower body. Here he's got feet, but he's got like wolf claws coming out of his toes. Well, yeah, he's, they, he's I really mean, quite a. They used him. They used, beautiful. They used him partly in you know their manufacturing, like Pan, in their manufacturing of the figure of the of the devil. Yes, they turned Serenos into the devil. But when you study the history sure. of Serenos and 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 in the fire in the head book and and some other research I did shows sculptures, you know, very old sculptures around Ireland and Scotland and places like that of Serdinos in his authentic presentation. And he, he very much correlates to Pan, which they also turned into the devil. And so um, I just want to share those resources with people so that they realize that what N is sharing and what I'm sharing here is by no means just us having some riff against Christianity or or against modernization, but it's really a question of who are we, what are we, and what does it take for us to be fully human and have our natural intelligence? Intellect is overrated. I mean, I work with very wealthy, successful people who can do amazing things and make billions of dollars a year, but come to me very sick be because they've lost touch with food. They've lost touch with water. They've lost touch with moving their bodies, with breathing properly with the earth and, and many, many people I've, I've encouraged to leave cities. Uh, I, I can't even count the number of my students that have gone off and started their own resorts or done what I've done and, and 
rented or bought a place out in, in nature where they can bring clients in and, and do functional exercise and have them stay out in the woods. And so I've, I've had nothing but letters of thanks from all over the world from my students who largely learned that from coming to see how I lived and then realized that's what they needed. And so the, the point I'll make to finish my, my interjection here is that if you really want to look into this, you want to read Enna's book for sure, because it really just is probably the most concentrated, potent uh, expose of all this stuff. But I like to share these other resources so other people can see it's not just Anna. She's not just uh, being a, a bitch against religion. She's telling the truth, but it's also referenced. And I have probably a, 150 books in my library, if not more, documenting everything that Anna's saying here. The real issue is for us to share this is to say, you know, we're all in trouble. We can't keep doing this. We're, we are going to kill this planet. We're on the edge of killing the planet. And we're also losing our soul to the point now that that we're losing what it means to be human. You know, anybody that takes a, a synthetic RNA shot, which is not even a vaccine, is no longer human. They're transhuman. That's in every DNA of your body. And technically, if you read the patents, which I have, they say once you have that injection in you, you are not your own. You are now property of the manufacturer. And people are jumping into this without even realizing that they're actually not only giving up their body, they're giving up their rights to themselves in a court of law, which is, I mean, if that's not complete theft and trickery, then what the hell is? Well, so that's shows, my interjection. Yeah, no, Paul, it just, it shows how expertly this religious process has, has, uh, has been carried out over the centuries, you know, and that's what uh, the book calls the long game of the gods. You know, this is, there is a consistency, you know, the continuity, there, over the millennia, okay, things are improvised, certain things are improvised, but you feel when you, at the present time in, in, in our history, you feel that this is, a deliberate construction. Some people are saying it's been decades in the making, but you've got some people like David Icke who say, no, it's been centuries and millennia in the making. This is, and you know, you need, one needs to understand that the phenomenon of religion is this thing that morphs from a religious thing to a secular thing, but it's still operating like a religion because it still is a religion conducted by high priests reaching its its uh, its apogee now in this connection please paul i need to pick up from what you said very you know i agree 150% on everything but you were referring to sernonos you were referring to nature worship no worship is for the gods and i I can't prove, of course, that the people way back two, two millennia ago who were having this relationship with Sernunos, I wasn't there and we don't, and you know, they probably didn't leave any written uh, testimony. But the word they used for Sernunos and for their other things that we call gods 
would probably be not be the word God that we have now. This is a point that I make very clearly in the book. Because we don't have other words for a, an interdimensional entity that is influential in the life of people in a different or an ancient or an aboriginal culture, the only word we have is God. Or it's the or it's you know devil. So I you know I really, really, really want to be very, very careful. Indigenous cultures, you know, when, when an anthropologist or an ethnologist goes to talk to a tribal elder and asks about the gods, the tribal elder who has to speak English or his or her interpreter who has to speak English is going to be translating whatever the local concept is into what can be understandable with the tools of the English language. They're going to say God. Well, no. The, the relationship of people with those entities is like, I don't know, I have a relationship with water, with the spirit of water. There's a great being that produces the thing we call water. I cannot call that I think God. spirits is a really good one. So spirit is, yeah, okay. It's got its other dangers, but whatever. And worship, do you worship the sun? Do you go down on, you know, prostrate yourself with the sun? No. In those ancient cultures, they were conversing and dealing and negotiating with these different great entities that were, you know, influencing their destinies. And that if they had the right kind of shamanic energy, they could also influence. So... It's not, we really have to be very, very careful with the words we use. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Nature worship, no, because we're using the same word for nature and for the fake gods. So we can't use the I same think word. I would use, yeah, I'm not trying to use it in the, in the negative way that you're referring to. I'm simply saying a respect of nature and an integrated love and appreciation and connection and realization that that what they were and who they were could not be ultimately separate from nature itself. Totally agreed with you, Paul. And I'm not taking issue, you know, with with what you're saying. I know, I know what you know. The thing is, if we who know use the same words as the people who don't know, it's this has to do with the what with what we communicate. If we use, you know, something like the worship of pagan gods, we are applying to them the same thing that we're applying to the false construct of religion. Consequently, we're not helping people to dispel, to dispel the, the, the concepts. And this, and we're, you know, using words in a, in a wrong way is, Precisely what the priesthood is absolutely excels at. You know, word spell, word spell is half of our problems. You know, we have a poverty of language, real poverty of language. And, you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the problem is we don't have a language to put in place. So that that's, and even if we did, nobody would understand it. So I think clarification of terms and applications is is the only thing i know to to in other words to make an effective transfer of intention of meaning yeah 
Sure. Well, that's that's precisely what we're doing. I think you know the whole thing that we're doing today and the previous times is is precisely that. Uh, we, ha- I mean, the amount of deceit of krivda that is packed into the languages that we use in the modern day is phenomenal. I mean, you know, there are times when there are very good books that I read and they use these terms, and I've got question, I've got exclamation marks everywhere, and. Uh, to express very, you know, the people who used to live in a community together, there is also the fact that they did not need to use so many words. They lived in the shared experience. They had many, 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 many words for snow if they were Eskimo, um, rice if they were Asian, um, you know, that kind of thing. But... It's still true in Asian languages. Sometimes much, much more is expressed by the gaps between the words than by the words themselves. The things you don't say are much more expressive, but people know. I mean, it's it's a shared cultural heritage that is not just verbal. It has to do with the fact that everything is language. The body is language. The, um, well, nature, everything is is a form of language. And so when people related to that in a shared understanding, well, they didn't need all the complexities that we have now. Um, but it's that, it's, it's in that innocence, rich, wise innocence of those close-to-earth languages that education, higher culture, have imprinted the poison of their of their word spell, of their word craft, and you know we're all we're all dealing with it. It's uh, so perhaps I'm I'm more sensitized to it because I live in between several languages, and you know the uh, the contrast between just the Asian languages that I've been exposed to and our Western languages, between Russian and English, of, between languages of you know, Southern Europe and Northern Europe. It's just phenomenal. So, okay, we don't need to, I think, spend too long on that, but I I think it's always worthwhile pointing out that, you know, the pitfalls, the pitfalls of words. Um, yeah, for all of us. Well, one of the things that rises up in, a, in, in the Buddhist tradition, especially Tibetan Buddhism, uh, one I one of the things I came across in my studies is that they have meditations specifically that don't use words that can be comprehended because it commandeers the mind. So, for example, there's a meditation I learned called the Moo meditation, and basically, who's leading the meditation says Moo, and so whatever they say, you say. So if I go Moo. You go moo. If they go moo moo, you go moo moo. But the reason they use that is because it doesn't really have any meaning. So there's no way you can actually get your intellect trapped in it. And therefore, eventually, what happens is moo subdues the ego and you have a transcendent experience. And I've used that meditation with lots and lots of my students over the years and use it myself. But the, the reason I'm bringing that up right now is because. In spiritual traditions that have a long history of going much deeper than the Western world into the psyche and into the the soul nature of a human being, 
or into into the core essence of a human being or deeper into consciousness, they realized a long time ago that words actually limit your ability to tap into the depths of the truth of yourself. And I, I, I think that we're sort of in a Mexican finger trap these days because most of us don't know how to get out of the of the cast that we're in. You know, I mean, like a cast like you wear on a broken bone, not cast like an Indian caste system, even though we, we also have the problem with the caste system because there's it's getting worse and worse. It's just it's just rich people and everybody else now. And uh, and they're the ones casting. So I think the take home lesson for everybody is, is if you spend time chanting and toning and being alone with yourself, not using words, that you can actually have some very healing experiences and give your mind permission not to have to constantly try to comprehend and make meaning out of words, because ultimately most of them are taking you away from your center, not into it. Quite, very much so, yeah. And the Tibetans got that from India. They've been doing, you know, the Bij Mantra, the seed syllables, basically, that are meaningless in terms of uh, exoteric language and esoteric, I mean, esoterically also. And that has to do, well, that's, a, that's another big topic, not, not, not for now, but it has to do with, you know, plugging in to a different vibrational frequency. Um, dimension. Um, we might go back to that right at the end of this episode. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I've got something great to share with you. I think you've all heard plenty in the news about zinc, but what you haven't heard about is Symbiotica's amazing new zinc complex which is all organic and a unique formulation. And so because Shervin's the expert and the formulator and the founder of Symbiotica, I brought him in to tell us about the zinc complex and when we know we should use it because of the symptoms we're having. So Shervin, how do we know we need this complex? You know, zinc, I'm a mineral guy. Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> it's Thank like, God. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. I mean, minerals are the root foundation of thought, emotion, and we're actually being present in the physical body. Without minerals, nothing can happen. Vitamins can't operate. Functions in the body can't happen. Hormones can't be made. You know, minerals are everything. And zinc in particular is very unique. I mean, think about it. They dip steel in zinc to keep it from corroding and rusting. That's called yeah. galvanization, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just think about what it's doing in the body. Zinc acts as a super antioxidant in the body from top, to bottom. Yeah. If you're deficient in zinc, most likely you have low libido, mm -hmm. low energy, depression. You're not motivated. You might have flaky skin. Mm. You're probably not sleeping well. You're probably not metabolizing well. Zinc is so profound in the human body that it crosses almost every barrier in the body. What do I mean by that? It's in your saliva. Yeah. It's in your snot. Mm -hmm. It's in your piss. Yeah. It's in your sweat. It's everywhere. And why is that? Because the, our bodies are designed to operate with good zinc in the body. So mm -hmm. this formula is powerful. The results that we're having, the testimonials we're having, and just take it from me, this might be the most powerful formula we have at Symbiotica, and that's saying a lot. We have three 
forms of zinc in here. Two of them are trademarked. We also have two forms of copper in here. Copper and zinc might displace each other. That's why we have to have the perfect ratios in there. Uh -huh. And then we also have selenium in there, mm. which creates the trifecta of these three critical minerals that we're not getting in our foods. Most people aren't eating oysters every day. Mm. And sometimes you just want to be able to reach in your cabinet and grab one little capsule I highly recommend eating this with your largest meal of the day mm. because it's that strong until your body acclimates to it. I'm very, very happy about how this turned out and the results that it's having for both men and women. Excellent. You know, I know that uh, selenium deficiency is linked to uh, heart heart problems, holes in the hearts, heart valve dysfunction. Cancers. Yeah. Diabetes. Like, uh, on. New Zealand has a d deficiency of selenium in their soil and they were having a lot of problems with heart problems in the sheep there. Yep. And they tracked it to selenium deficiency. And I've also known of people that needed selenium to heal their heart. So what a great combination. So if you want to get your zinc complex, go to symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. And as a Living 4D listener, use the code CHECK15 on checkout and get 15% off your zinc complex and any of Symbiotica's amazing products. So enjoy and please take care of yourself. We all need to get our hands together and make the world a better place right now. So if your zinc complex and your Symbiotica products help us do that, then that's a worthy investment. Lots of love. In this episode, I wanted to um, alert people to this issue of our multifaceted poverty. That, you know, in our hubris, we have been not not we ordinary people, but our modern industrial capitalist culture has been exporting to the whole world and that is making those who are still rich, even though they are money poor, it is making them definitely poor in all the same ways as us. So that's one big aspect. And another, you know, there are so many, so many, so many different facets of these religious structures from the religious into the secular that we could talk about. But, you know, here we're only highlighting the major, big, big thematic chunks. And so if it's okay with you, Paul, I think the business of poverty where, you know, we have this poverty of soul, this, this brings us into what is the most atrocious aspect which we are witnessing today in, uh, it's, it's there, it's in our face. It's the aspect of sacrifice. And, you know, I think we said right at the beginning in the first ep episode, sacrifice, yeah, I mean, it's, sacrifice is a good thing. You sacrifice for a good cause and da-da-da. Sacrifice, I should perhaps repeat, is sacrum facere. Sacrum means separate. Making separate a place, a person, an object for a religious, godly, ritual purpose. So a temple is sacred. It's separate from, you know, ordinary dwellings. In these cultures, and I like to, by the way, parenthetically, in all over Asia, you've got a shrine. People have a shrine in their own home. So there is no separation. Okay, the sacred that is made separate in those religions is, it's not separate and it's just, you know, a holy place inside your own home. So 
there's, you know, what is sacred is those places, the objects, the altars, whatever is going to be used in the holy sacred place. And then there are the sacred offerings, which in a peace-loving culture will be flowers and bananas and coconuts and things like that. But we know, I mean, the historical record is very clear that Baal and Moloch required infants that were thrown into, you know, the, the statue of the god, which was actually a machine that would burn, burn, the, burn the infants. And we know from the Yahweh story that Yahweh required, at a regular interval, eight-year-old male infants, along with, you know, some lambs and perhaps some plants. And they had to be burnt, fully burnt, which is the real meaning of Holocaust, fully burnt. I think, you know, the traumatization of humans by that practice, I mean, can you even imagine either being the infant or being the mother giving up the infant who's, who's still a suckling child at eight, you know, eight days old. So, I mean, that imprint of violence in the remote past, well, I mean, it's the reality of those religions. Now, we like to believe that things got more civilized over time. Um, well... I think they got more well-hidden is all that happened. They got partially hidden, but they were also revealed when... Let's say, uh, you know, the Christian church went all out with its inquisitions. And even before the official establishment of the permanent inquisition, people would be burnt. They would be burnt at the stake. And there's this business of burning people alive, which I find very, very striking. And it's happening now not with an outside fire, although chemtrails, you know, take part. But basically, it's taking place now with all the poisoning through the chemtrails, through the GMOs, through the NAC, and through the inoculations, so that there is a fire that's going to burn you from inside. But what I want to insist upon is this sacrificial uh, imperative to feed the gods, and to feed power, and not only power, to the you know priestly elites in in charge of administering the religion of whatever god, and now it's the god of what I call the techno mind. And you know what's happening with these inoculations worldwide. It is noticed by some commentators that this is a worldwide human sacrifice. And yes, they're absolutely correct. It is a worldwide human sacrifice. And some people who know about the all the underground satanic ritual or whatever practices say that what is happening to the whole world now is God's retaliation for all the kids that we've allowed to be sacrificed um, in satanic ritual stuff. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's all, 
you know, for a normally constituted, humane, kind, loving human, it's very, very, very difficult to come to terms with this as the real reality. But if we are going to overcome this, we have to go through the pain of it. As Paul said earlier, you know, we learn through pain, not by running away from it, but by traversing it, going through it. And I think it really is absolutely essential for many, many, many more people to know that human sacrifice, we know about animal sacrifice in the labs, in the cullings, in the, you know, the CAFO, all of that is animal sacrifice in a huge way. We know about it. Our sensitive souls don't like it. But we still insist that if it's uh, for a vaccine, well, it should be tested on animals first. Let's torture the animals to find out first. So there are lots of, you know, we are ambivalent and we're not completely clear with our ethical moral standards in respect of where and how is it lawful to kill another living being um, you know we've got the codes of indigenous people who will go and negotiate with the spirit of this or that animal for one such animal to give itself up um, it's not the same to be snatching kids all over the place or even raising them specifically for sacrificial purposes. And um, But this is what's happening now. The whole of humankind is the sacrificial victim of the ultimate technomind god. The few of us, in their plan, it's not going to work, but in their plan, the few of us who will still be surviving are supposed to be changed into some kind of cyborg thing that, you know, as Paul just said, the patents exist that show that once you've accepted these artificial synthetic changes in your DNA, you are no longer a natural human being, and they can claim to own your body. Thereby, through the body, they can claim your soul. And that's the ultimate point of this. The gods and the priests do not have the that thing that we call a human soul, which is very nebulous to most people. They do not have the attributes that go with this. And we'll be talking more about this in the next final episode. But for now, it's important to understand that the violence that, is, that, that, that you know, was imposed on the early people who had to sacrifice their newborn babies, the types of punishment that were meted out to heretics, <laughs> and those are only you know, some examples. They were designed as you know, MK-ultra forms of utmost violence to imprint helplessness, and the need to be sacrificial to the gods upon the human psyche. This has been imprinted in us over millennia. 
It's deep inside our unconscious. You may think that you're a successful, happy family person now in this life. We have all been imprinted with this. We all carry it. Perhaps not in your immediate lineage, not from your parents, but some, somewhere in the past, great-great-grandparents, and in past lives, we've all been through this or that form of being the sacrificer and being the sacrificed. So we need to come to terms with it. We need to come to terms with it, just not just intellectually. We know, many of us know, that you know, nasty things happen to kids. And what can we do about it? We have to wait for, you know, white hats to go and open up the dumbs and liberate the kids and this, that, and the other. I would contend that it takes a shift in the human field, the shift, a shift in human emotional consciousness field to defeat this directly. Paul, would you want me to tell you about, you know, where I come from on this? Yeah, I was just going to say before you move off of that point, a lot of people don't realize, but one of the things that's come out from scientific research using random event generators and the demonstration that when you get enough people thinking the same thoughts, feelings, or emotions, that it actually shifts a random event generator to statistical probabilities that are in the billions of, uh, of against chance, right? Uh, even higher than billions. For example, when Princess Diana died, the random event generators all went way off of random into an ordered pattern. Um, 911. I mean, they have, I've studied a lot of this. It's hard science. But I've talked to people that are experts in this field and because I, I was asking the question, how many of us have to get in um, harmony with the values or the dream that we want to share with the rest of the world in order to move the population towards a higher consciousness, a, a more harmonized awakening together? And the number that I was given was one million. Which, when you think about it, it isn't that many people. If we can get one million people to recognize that we've got to protect the earth, we've got to stop torturing the planet, we've got to stop using chemicals, we've got to stop um, immoral science, we've got to stop the pollution of the environment through extreme electromagnetic pollution, we've got to protect the oceans, etc., that the energy of 1 million people with a common dream is more powerful than 7 billion people that are just scattered and in fear. And one of the examples of that is, is in physics, they show, and William A. Tiller speaks about this, and, and I think Dean Radin, there's a few, but the example they give is, is the same amount of light coming out of a 60-watt light bulb, which is a standard light fixture light bulb, that light is incoherent. It's bouncing all over the place. But the research shows conclusively with no more light than that put into coherence, you can create a laser that will cut right through steel. So the point I'm making is the same amount of energy 
in a one in one sixty watt light bulb that's out of coherence doesn't have any working capacity other than lighting a room. But if you organize that light, like you could organize a million people with a common dream, the light bulb has enough power to cut through steel. If we can organize at least 1 million people around what we all need, we all need each other. We all need clean water. We all need healthy soil. We all need clean air. We all need moral and responsible business practices. We all need moral and responsible science. So if a, if a million of us can get clear on what it takes to keep the planet and humans in balance with each other so that we can evolve without having to traumatize nature any further or bring ourselves into the completion of the sixth mass extinction, I think that's where the light at the end of the tunnel is, but we've got to organize the light and 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 generate it ourselves. We can't wait for some doctor, scientist or or uh you know, messiah to come do it for us because uh if that messiah was going to be around, that messiah would have showed up for the first world, world war, the second world war and many other things. So I think it's time for us to become our own messiah. I, I see no other way out of this. Sure. Absolutely. But, you know, what you're saying it could be one million. There, I mean, that's a scientific approach. Actually, if you connect that with the fact that mm, the training of a shaman is basically the training over time to be able to hold, to focus and to hold more and more non-physical energy. Right? Um, and that's... Yep. That, and that's, psychic energy. That's, I mean, non-physical, basically non-ordinary energy. There again, you know, we don't have the right words, but interdimensional energy. So that you can go and have a chit-chat with the spirits and you can, you know, move a mountain and you can uh, make rainfall, whatever. Basically, it's a matter of being able to hold it more and more intensities and to be able to focus the intensity of that energy. So that's what you're talking about. It takes a million people who have a sufficient focus of energy. And for it to be focused, they can't be ignorant. They can't be ambivalent. They have to be, you know, very clear. And they have to have the, uh, well, many, we can talk about, about that, uh, you know, tomorrow, basically. It's, they have to be esoterically intelligent in addition to be intelligent on this earth, okay? And I'm not saying esoteric in terms of doing all sorts of weird rituals. It's an attunement to other dimensions working through us. Yeah, it's an attunement to consciousness. Well, uh, we could have a two-hour discussion on what is consciousness for you, for me, and for everybody else. It's Reality, okay, an attunement to reality in the in these dimensions, our three D dimensions, which we're so accustomed to, and the other dimensions that totally interpenetrate. You know, the different bodies of the Indian system, the the meridian system, the meridians of the Chinese traditional system. I mean, these other subtle levels of dimensionality that are part and parcel of our reality and from which we've been divorced, of which we are now poor. So people who go into 
a greater attunement to those things can focus their energy. It has to be people who have a practice of, you know, whatever yoga, this, that, and the other. But not just formally, it has to be in the heart. We can talk about that more tomorrow. But why I'm, I'm, what I'm insisting on now is if we do not understand that we are under the thumb of a sacrificial pathocracy which feeds on sacrifice of all life forms but with a special special sort of you know five star michelin gourmet status for certain types of human food unless we understand that we we won't be able to uh to go beyond the stage where we are now as a collective and so um to me, the sacrificial aspect is obvious every day. I force myself to listen to the latest horrors and I grieve and I take them in and I digest them, alchemize them into more love, more determination, more focus. It's, you know, there is this phenomenally perverse energy that is, that feeds on human energy, human substances that needs to and that now seeks to divorce us from what we truly are as humans. We're not, as humans, we're not just, you know, one species amongst many other on a tiny insignificant planet in one remote corner of the galaxy. No, no. We are much, much more, I mean, you know, incommensurably more than that. And they know it. And they have kept this knowledge from us for all these millennia. But now it's coming back, you know, to some people beginning to realize that we are something else. So, you know, people say, oh, yes, I have God inside me, or I have the divine spark. I was made from a divine spark. Um... I don't really like that kind of terminology. If we're going to take it really seriously, uh, who we really are, the discovery of who we really are, and how these religious machin mach machinations, machinations have actually now forced us into a corner where we either discover or we are gone forever. I mean, not just this life gone forever. I mean, the soul may be gone for a very long eternity, you know, before it can return to a human experience. So it behooves us. It really behooves us to understand that we are all, in fact, and or potentially, the sacrificial, we're all part of one big human sacrifice. All of us. And it is no use imagining, well, yeah, perhaps I can sidestep this thing. You know, perhaps I can exempt myself from this thing. Um, the, the 
The exemption from this thing is by owning it. It's exactly like you were saying about pain. You know, you go through it and it transmutes into a greater form of energy. So we need to know that it's real. We need to know in our heart that it is very real. We need to understand how desperate the gods and the priesthoods are for this sacrifice to work to their ends. And once we've understood that, we can change the dynamic, to put it diplomatically. Hi, everybody. Have you ever wondered why your blood is red? It's because it's full of oxygen and life force. It's what keeps you going. But what if I could tell you about something else that's red that will add more life force and keep you going? And if you start with a red juice before you have coffee or tea and wait a few minutes, you might find that you either don't need the coffee or the tea or you need less of it. But this time, instead of getting coffee and tea, you got a lot of nutrition and a lot of great stuff for stress management and detoxification. And it's so important. I got Drew Cannoli. It took me two years to get him to come (laughs) hang out with me and talk about this. I said, Drew, tell me more about your red juice. And he is right here to tell us what is on with your red juice. My kids love it. Everybody I know loves it. Well, I love that we have it for kids. Because when I was a kid, there was this big red dude that would burst through a brick wall. And he was like, oh, yeah. He would feed me a glass of 50 grams of sugar, (laughs) giving most people diabetes, ADHD, addiction. Obesity. Obesity. All the things, right? Mm -hmm. So when we created red, it was, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. If we could create something that could create lasting stamina, lasting energy. And then we started to look at our ancient ancestors. Mm -hmm. We talk about the Vikings, Mm -hmm. the people that were rowing across the oceans Oceans. for days. (laughs) Yeah. To go to war. What were they taking? Well, they were taking rhodiola. Rhodiola is in our red juice. And then we were like, okay, so out of all the mushrooms, what's one of the best medicinal mushrooms that can give us long lasting energy? Mm. We found cordyceps. Cordyceps Mm. are absolutely amazing. Yes. Not just any cordyceps or rhodiola, glyphosate residue free and organic. Mm -hmm. And how can we make it taste better? Then the, oh yeah, you know, how do we make it taste better than that without the sugar? We added a little monk fruit. Monk fruit's amazing. Yep. And we found the best berries on the planet. Mm. Berries in in high amounts, which we have in the red juice, actually help increase stem cell creation in your body. Mm. What's better than that for our little ones and for us? Yes. And so many people are just lethargic. They're lacking energy. Yes. What could we do for that? Red juice in the afternoon, 2 p.m. rolls around instead of a nap, instead of the coffee. Drink the red juice. You're going to feel so much better. Well, if you need the nap, take the nap if you can, but then take the red juice to kick you back into gear. Exactly. I love naps and I love coffee. I, I do too, but I love to make sure I got the nutrition in me first. You know, the other thing is berries are a natural stimulant to the adrenal glands. So mm. if people would do a little red juice before they do coffee and tea, they would pick themselves up naturally, except this time they're bringing in nutrition. And unfortunately, coffee blocks almost every vitamin and mineral you can put in your mouth. So Hey, there you have it, right from the man himself. If you're ready to get red with life force energy and vitality, go to Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And to make it even better, use the code C-H-E-K-20, all caps, to get your 20% discount on checkout because you're a living 4D badass and we want you healthy. I love you. Bye-bye. You know, there seems to be a, a unfathomably um, deep appetite 
by the people uh, that are running these sacrifices. But my question is, if the plan that they're executing now goes through, they're going to actually end up in a position where they're starving themselves to death because they're going to have nothing left to sacrifice. So it's almost as though they're they're cutting their own throats. Uh, what do you see the end game is, and how do they? What what are they going to do? Say, okay, we're going to leave it to a million people and just uh, shut it down, or or I mean, in order to make sense of this, I I'm trying to find the logic in their end game. Do you have any comments on that? My sense is that basically, they well, they have to do it because there's all sorts of things happening in the cosmos in the great being that is our planet Earth. There's all sorts of mega energetic changes. There's the pole shifts. There's the changes in the sun. There's the changing of cycles, going into the age of Aquarius. And, you know, many, many other things that I'm not sort of, you know, uh, aware, cognizant of as a, as, as a scholar, okay? But as a... As a mystic, basically, I mean, I can feel the things that are happening within Earth. The changes that are happening all over the place are making it necessary for the gods and their priests to, to stage their fi grand finale now, because once the changes have happened, they will no longer be able to use this place. And so... Because, you know, they are egotistic, spiteful entities, it's let's gobble up as much of it as we can and let the system, let, you know, and ideally poison life with anti-life so that this planet can never again be the beautiful thing that it was. There's a hell of a lot of envy in what they're doing. If you can see, I mean, everything, you know, every single piece of life, be it a leaf or a tree or an animal or a human, has to be GMOified, has to be CRISPRed. They want to, and they, they call it better life. They want it to be a fake life. They've done everything else fake. Now, life herself has to be made fake so that. I, I assume they think that if they can pull that, they will be able to go through all the cataclysms or through all the earth changes or whatever and hold on to their status quo. The other part of it, needing to sacrifice us, has to do with enrolling the power of our souls, trapping them somehow, you know, in a genie's bottle that they can go and take into other galaxies to do elsewhere what they've done here. You know, there isn't very much uh, clear knowledge about these things. I can only, you know, mention... Uh, well, information that comes from people who go into an altered state of consciousness, including myself, and get snippets of what it might be about. I mean, to go there, you know, it's very difficult for us to go into the mindset of the gods and the priests. 
especially if we have done everything to heal ourselves from the imprinting that we've had from them. But if you understand that they are uber, uber psychopathic, sociopathic, narcissistic, pathocratic, um, then, and you understand that their, their arena is, it's not just earth. They belong to, you know, a, an intergalactic empire. So, you know, remote viewers also give interesting information on that you can get tidbits from and you can piece together something. I can't give a final, rational, objective, clear-cut uh, picture of where this is going from their point of view as opposed to what I've been able to reconstitute from the past. But one can extrapolate from the past where they might be going. And the other thing is that there is the issue of always more, okay? Very rich people don't need more money, but they always want more. They already have lots of power. They always want more. So these people, these sort of, you know, these, the gods, the techno mind, the etc., they want more. They've had all sorts of big sacrifices so far across history. And now, wouldn't it be fantastic if we had the huge planetary-wide holocaust of this particular planet, every life form completely modified to our designs, and we suck all the blood, the real live uh, natural blood out of them, and then, well, we can just, you know, abandon an empty shell or leave a few of our people behind and go and colonize another world. That, to my mind, based on their past record, makes total sense. Yeah. You know, as we sort of head to the end of the podcast today, there's a couple of comments I want to make. And, and, and what I'd like to say is, you know, a lot of what Anna's describing and what we're talking about here, we can't objectify. There's many, many books and many experts. I've studied so many different opinions on this. It's incredible. But I think that what's important for all of us as, as you know, I'm speaking to all the listeners is to say, okay, well, what is objective? And what is objective is that what's going on in the world on many levels is extremely dangerous and destructive. Science is out of control. Medicine is out of control. Banking is out of control. Education is completely dysfunctional. The food system is completely out of control, except for the handful of people. I mean, only 4 to 6% of the food eaten in this entire world is organically farmed. So that shows you that about you know, 94 to 96% of the people out there are putting money into the hands of the machine that's destroying the very planet we live on without even being really very conscious of it. So my point is the justice system is, is broken. Regardless of what the origin or what the etiology or what the end game of be it the gods or the uh, rich people, what we, what we need to walk away from this conversation with is that we're the only ones that can do something about it. And they're dependent upon our subservience to execute 
the continuation of the destruction of culture, humanity, and nature. And only by us getting together and getting clear, as I said earlier, if a, if a million people, they don't need to be expert meditators, but if a million people start saying, okay, each day I'm going to take 15 minutes to open my heart and send a message of coherence from my heart to protect life and to protect each other, that can be the beginning of a shift towards an awareness on the other 7 billion people that there is life to be protected and there is there's culture to be protected. There's diversity to be protected. There's love and relationship and there's nature to be protected. And those things are essentially what makes a human being a human being. So whether there's aliens involved or any of that other stuff isn't necessary to the actual fact of what we need to do together right now that is a fact. So I just want to protect people's minds from discounting the real factual stuff we're talking about by saying, oh, she's referring to extraterrestrials or Paul saying this. But in actual fact, what we're saying is the rubber meets the road with us and only we can wake up to the responsibility of being the change. And in order to go through that, we may have to go through some sacrifices ourselves. Like we may have to learn to not keep putting money into gamers and and we may have to develop social media systems that are not designed to brainwash and give dopamine hits every time you get a like from somebody. We may have to get wise enough to stop putting money into corporations that are destroying the planet. We may have to start using the geniuses amongst children and young people in, in institutes of technology to create electronics and phone systems that are safe to use and start swinging the tide towards giving people options that are actually viable for the future. So that that's sort of where I, I personally want to leave this conversation because uh, my fear is that we're talking about enough out-of-the-box stuff that a lot of the rationalists are going to just discount what's what's rational in this conversation. Uh, I empathize with your position, Paul, but um, we're not going to get out of this mess with just rationality. And well, I'm not saying just rationality. I'm saying open your heart, and and we have to we have to we have to work spiritually together. We can't wait for everyone to get ten years of esoteric training. We have to start feet on ground right now. Right, feet on ground. Where is? I would like to ask. I would like everybody to wonder between now and the next episode. Do you have a soul? Most of you would say yes. Where is it? Where is it? Do you have a relationship with it every day or is it just there in the background? Is it an abstract thing or is it something that you feel? Why do I say that? Because we all have suffered what the indigenous people call soul loss. And all the things that we need to do, Paul, they are daunting if we only have our rationality and the goodness of our heart. 
if we are not fully empowered by the reconnecting of all the bits and pieces of who we really are, it's just too much. But when one regains one's integrity as a human being, at least to some extent, the body, the soul, the spirit, the heart, and everything, it becomes a totally different ballgame. And then the business of being 10 million or 1 million or 10,000 or 10 billion, uh, I don't know. To me, it's not, it's not necessarily relevant anymore. So I would really like, because, you know, the people who are in your audience, from what I understand and infer, are the people that you have trained, influenced, role modeled. They are people who have their feet on the ground. They are athletes, bodybuilders, successful, you know, builders of whatever, enterprises. But they're basically rooted in, in 3D reality in a very solid way, unlike most people. So that's a very good, solid foundation. Furthermore, I would imagine, and from, you know, those who've contacted me so far, uh, they're good people at heart. But we need to go much, much further than, you know, goodness of the heart. What is the heart? We'll be talking about this much more in the next episode. Remembering that for the ancient Greeks, and this got forgotten, it's the heart that is the seat of the soul. And so that, I think, is a very interesting clue. I would like people to think about that a little bit between now and tomorrow, now and the next episode. I don't know when, when they're going to be when they're going to be aired. Because we are going to go into partly things that are not so rational. We need to take our power from what we are as both incarnate and multidimensional beings. So the very first thing is to find out do I know that I have a soul? Do I know it in an abstract way? Do I know it really and experientially? Where is it? Is it out there in some kind of intangible limbo? Or do I really feel it pervading my physical being or being anchored to my physical being? And that kind of that's, that's an interesting kind of exploration that, you know, most people don't do. Oh, yes, of course I have a soul. Okay, where is it? Well, just for everybody, yeah, for everybody listening, I have an online course called Primal Pattern Eating, which is eight hours of training cut out of my holistic lifestyle coach level two, which I did specifically because I felt this information was so absolutely critical for the public that I didn't want them to have to go through an expensive five-day training program for professional life coaches to access their soul. So in the Primal Pattern Eating Workshop, I actually teach you how to connect with your soul and how to let it begin to guide your life, how to be aware that it's there, etc. So for those of you that want to answer that question with my help, uh, you're welcome to take that course. I do teach these things in holistic lifestyle coach training. And this is a practice that I've been in 
constantly for probably 25 years myself. So I'm very adept at what the soul is and how to access it and how to let it guide your life. And that's one of the reasons it's such an important part of the Institute. And it's also uh, an important part of the new book that I'm writing. But I think, as Anna's saying, it's very important for everybody to sit still under a tall tree and ask these questions, because if you start reading books, you're not going to find the answer because you're externalizing your consciousness. If you want to know what your soul is, you got to spend time inside yourself and be present with yourself while you hold that question in your mind. And if you hold that question as a contemplative meditation and ask your soul, if you're there, show me a sign that you're there and pay close attention to what happens inside of you, you'll be marching down the right road. So, Anna, do you have any other comments before we close today? No, I think that's 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 very good. We've gone through, you know, we've gone through the darkest aspect of this whole thing, and um, uh, we can go into, you know, there are other people who are doing a great job of offering solutions and teaching solutions, you know. Uh, permaculture and developing intentional communities that's fantastic that's great work I want to go deeper because we can only empower those projects from a deeper place inside ourselves so where we, where we will be going you know in the last episode will be the good stuff um, and in particular you know from from what, what I learned uh, with this esoteric grassroots movement, very obscure, you know, in India, that has no gods, no priests, and no religion. In India, if you can believe that, you know, the place that has That's more pretty gods, wild for India. More gods than any other place on, on earth. These people, no gods, no priests, no religion. Ours is the human path. And so those those are going to be, you know, the the guides for for tomorrow, for the next episode. Fantastic. And, okay. And finishing on the soul, you know, if people will sincerely put, you know, a little bit of time into into going there, uh, I think it will be very helpful because, I mean, ideally, you know, this kind of discussion, it's an interaction between you and me, Paul, but through you, I'm interacting with uh you know, your audience, most of whom, of course, I don't know. And I, you know, I love that you are expressing questions that would come from them. That's really, really, you know, that's really essential in this kind of exercise. But it's, uh, I would like, you know, the last leg of uh, this joint journey together to be interactive, even though I am not knowing, seeing, hearing the audience. Well, they're there listening. You can rest assured. So, you know, I think I want them to as participate. someone who practices. I want them to participate with their soul to, in the next one. I want them to be right there, you know, not just listening passively, you know, but um, it would be great if people could latch on to this, you know, the intensity of pain that this history represents 
but the intensity of potential that we really, really have is fantastic. Yes. So that will be our focus. And I think anybody that's listened this far is, is already connected to us at the soul or they wouldn't be here. Um, because this is certainly not a happy, uh, Disney movie that we're unveiling here. It's a reality check of major proportions. So, uh, I will say thank you to our sponsors and also thank you to all of you listening. I mean, you know, this is adult material, obviously this is, uh, this is wake up, clean up, grow up and show up as Ken Wilber would say. And, uh, there's a reason Ken Wilber says that. And I think I don't need to expand on that if you've been listening. And I think we're all in this together and I do what I do and commit myself to everything that I've put together for the Czech Institute, all the podcasts I've done, all the solo podcasts I've done. Anybody that's followed me knows what, what my agenda is. And that is just to share as much of the knowledge that I've gained through my life and, and my hard work and my sacrifice and my pain to help other people not have to make the same mistakes that I made in order to gain that knowledge. And that's what a teacher's for. And that's what a guide's for. And, and I think Enna's doing the same thing. She's, she's a mature woman who's lived a lot of life and she's seen the wealthy and the uh, rich and she's seen the, the poor and the, and the not so poor. So I think for all of us, it's just important for us to say what rings true for me and what is the reality I see happening around me and how can I live in a way that exemplifies to others a change that moves us towards sustainability and harmony? And I think if we just stick to those practical issues without having to worry about getting too fancy or esoteric, just focus your heart and your soul on what can I bring into the world that adds more harmony to the world and is a living example for others. And I think that that right now is an ama a very important first step. So thank you to all of you for hanging in there with us. Thank you to my sponsors for all of your love and support and your amazing products. Thank you to all of you that buy things from the sponsors. I know you're getting top quality stuff. I don't associate with any company that isn't first class and sustainable. And uh, thank you for your purchases because a little commission goes to help me run the podcast, which we do put a lot of time, energy, and money into for all of you guys. So lots of love. We are safe. We are home. We are whole. A whole great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Enna Reitort. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to the first two episodes with Enna, number 173 on the etymology of the root words used in sacred scriptures, where Enna shares essential meanings of words that people are often unaware of and therefore are unaware of what they create through the unconscious use of such words. Also episode 174, where Enna shares deep research into who Jesus really was as a humanitarian and what inspired him to flip the tables on the money changers. Enna unveils the many tools of manipulation that the priest class use to perpetually sacrifice human beings, keep them poor and under their control. And it won't be hard for anyone listening to recognize these strategies at work in the world today. Also stay tuned for a forthcoming episode where Enna discusses back to the future of humanity. 
To order signed paperback copies of Creevda, The God Tricks Against the Matrix, please go to ennareitortbooks.com. That's E-N-N-A-R-E-I-T-T-O-R-T-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And use the contact form at the bottom of the page. For the ebook version, go to bit.ly forward slash Creevda The God Tricks. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash K-R-I-V-D-A-T-H-E-G-O-D-T-R-I-X. Follow Paul on Instagram at Paul.Check, on Twitter at PaulCheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living 4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at czechinstitute.com forward slash podcast. 